Welcome to episode eight of the Cinema Podcast. Hope you folks have been enjoying it. Yesterday, a hashtag on Twitter uh, was trending the Home Alone remake. So the, the real question today is, are remakes, reboots, repackagings, reimaginings, all, all those stupid words, uh, are they inherently cynical and, and are they bad? Uh, I, I guess I'm going to start out with by saying um, someone came back with a great conversation on Twitter uh, that, you know, for disparaging remakes, you're, you're not taking into consideration a film like The Thing, John Carpenter's 1982 The Thing. And my response to that was, is that I don't count The Thing as a remake. I believe it is a, a direct translation of the original novella and source material, and that the remake word was attached to it as, as a kind of bad marketing plan. I think Universal totally dropped the ball. We can get into The Thing and, and all of that at a later date on a separate episode, especially when I talk about the mishandling of, of the 2011 film, which was perceived as a remake, and, and it wasn't. Uh, the Thing 2011 is, is a prequel, and, and like I said, we can get into that later. Are, are remakes, reimaginings, repackagings, or, or sequels, are, are they bad? And, and the answer is no, they're not inherently bad. I'm not really debating that. I'm, I'm not outraged over a Home Alone remake. Quite, quite frankly, I, I was a movie theater manager uh, at the time the original Home Alone played, and, and I never quite got the success of the movie. I mean, it was cute, it was nice, but I always felt that the original Home Alone was just one of those movies that we're told we have to love because it's a Christmas film, and Macaulay Culkin was cute as hell, and it's got some hijinks in it and some slapstick, and it's just, you know, the family film that we're all told we have to love. As for sequels, I, I think Roy Scheider said it best one time. Look, everybody pretty much knows that a gun was held to his head to, to come back and do Jaws 2. He really didn't want to do it, but he had a legal snafu going on with Universal at the time for quitting the deer hunter. And so basically he was, he was kind of forced to, to do Jaws 2 and they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. But to play nice in an interview, I remember him saying when somebody said about it being a sequel, he said something along the line of, look, I, what's wrong with bringing back a story that gives people a good time? That's really what it comes down to. Some sequels are great, some are not. We, we can debate forever what's been a better sequel or a great sequel. It, it really doesn't matter. And the same can go for remakes. Look, the, the remake for True Grit was terrific. Remakes are not inherently bad. Is sequel really a, a dirty word? It used to be. And, and while sequels were no new thing in Hollywood, like around the time of Jaws, around 1975, I mean, Hollywood was, you know, kind of bitch slapped by Spielberg's Jaws into seeing how summer blockbusters could, could generate huge revenue. Jaws changed the way movies were made, how they were marketed, and how they were released. It, it, for better or for worse, Jaws became the first true summer blockbuster, generating $100 bucks in, in basically six weeks. And we're talking at the time when ticket prices were around $1.75, two bucks a ticket. Man, Hollywood suddenly went, wow, people can come to the movies in the summer, which usually they considered a slow time. And if you throw something out there and, and, and just really, you know, market the living hell out of it, you can make a lot of money. So it was, it was almost a no-brainer to make Jaws 2. And, and Jaws 2 was made for far more money than Jaws, but it also made a lot of money. And they knew that Jaws 2 was going to be a pretty sure bet. And then along comes Star Wars and the word franchise kind of starts coming into the picture. And Hollywood kind of woke up to realize what it was missing. 
and and make no mistake I'm, I'm not ignorant i know for a fact i mean look at the thin man movies and clint eastwood movies the spaghetti western sequels after sequels we we know what sequels were but again at this time there was still the thought that sequel was kind of cheap and and spielberg said that about making a jaws too he said it's kind of a carnival hustle and i really don't want anything to do with it so before we get into the remake thing, you've, you've got to look at it almost like a hybrid thing that, that I, I don't know what to call this, but it's not really a sequel and it's not really a remake. It's kind of like this repackaging. That's what I'm going to call it. It's, it's a repackaging. So looking at things at first like you know Jurassic World or, or Terminator Genesis or, or Star Trek Into Darkness, which these are technically sequels to their original films. But they kind of went back and they took all the best scenes out of those original films and they remade them. There's some great videos online, especially of, of the original Jurassic World. And I even hate to use the word original with Jurassic World because there really isn't much original about it. Jurassic World is pretty much a remake of Jurassic Park, except that it does continue the storyline and furthers it along. So it's not really a remake. So I'm going to call this a kind of repackaging. The point being is, is all these films depend on nostalgia, folks, as their lifeblood. They simply can't exist without the hard work of their previous better written films. The three films, Jurassic World, Terminator Genesis, and Into Darkness, they all define style over substance and they exist only because of the hard work done by a previous generation of filmmakers. It's interesting that this has been said of the millennial generation, which some people say is a generation that has little regard for what came before it, but wants to reap the rewards of, of the hard work done before them by the previous generations. The scripts for something like Jurassic World or Terminator Genesis or Into Darkness, they're, they're not so much actually three-act screenplays, but rather they're to-do lists. They, they contain all the recognizable elements of, of the better previous films while a manager, not really a director, pushes the story through to the end. In between are thing characters and a strong reliance on the recognitions of scenes from the better movies, which are now translated as nostalgia. So I'm going to real quick go into Star Trek Into Darkness before I hit on Ghostbusters 2016 about remakes and, and this hybrid repackaging thing. I got to admit, man, I really did enjoy J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek reboot. I am not a Star Trek fanboy, a Trekkie, Trekker, or even a really a, a series fan. I've got a whole story about how I got involved in, into the Star Trek movies. I saw the original 1979 Star Trek The Motion Picture in, in theaters and I fell asleep for like 10 minutes in that movie and and that was at a time man when Star Wars had come out and people were hyped again on on space science fiction and I went to see Star Trek the motion picture at the local mall that eventually I would be working at and I'm telling you I fell asleep no kidding for like 10 minutes when I woke up I felt nothing had really happened I remember one reviewer called it Star Trek the motionless picture and, and I kind of got to agree, I, I, I see some great things about Star Trek The Motion Picture, but can't say it was the most thrilling space adventure I'd ever seen. And so while I did see the original series of Star Trek growing up, it, it was the Wrath of Khan that got me into the Star Trek movies. I never really embraced the next generation or any of the series spinoffs, and I've only seen like a handful of episodes from various seasons of the Picard years. 
I, I thought the next generation feature films were, were really kind of lackluster and a lot of wasted opportunities. However, I did get into Star Trek two through six. I was moved. I, I got to tell you, I was moved to tears by Spock's death in Star Trek two and, and Kirk's sacrifices and and I was rightly even turned off by Shatner's fifth film. So before anybody goes, yeah, but you got Star Trek five. I, I get it, man. I, I get it. And part six was, I felt, a classy exit for the original cast. And, and I felt that Kirk's death in Generations was a waste and a cynical cash grab to lure audiences to watch the new crew. It was kind of like, look, we really know we don't have anything here. And, and the only thing to get you into theaters is the premise that we're going to kill off Kirk. So uh, come along for the ride and we're going to take your money. And if you watch Star Trek Generations, it's really a sloppy film and, and badly written. And, and, and I think very cynical because they just openly ignored certain things uh, just to make a movie and, and to get asses into seats. So when J.J. Abrams was, was picked to, to revamp the declining Star Trek franchise, even the biggest Star Trek fans knew something had to change. The, the last Star Trek film, I, I think, what was it, Nemesis, was a dud. I mean, I watched it, it had some storyline that should have been reserved for a Star Trek The Next Generation TV episode. And everyone in that last film looked absolutely fucking bored and, and ready to collect their paycheck. Kind of like how Harrison Ford was in Return of the Jedi, if you remember that. I mean, talk about just sleepwalking through your role. Here is major respect for the 2009 reboot because they did something pretty damn clever. It didn't break canon, and it's kind of a remake, but it's really a sequel. So instead, the writers of, of Star Trek 2009 brought back the old alternate timeline plot device, and man, did they make it work. Basically, the filmmakers could go back and redo everything from like the Star Trek series and the original movies. They, they could go back and do it all. They, they could even remake old film and series plots because, because now everything was different. They figured out a way to have their cake and eat it too. And, and I will say this and I've said it in interviews, J.J. Abrams pulled off the ultimate cinematic hat trick. It, it was sheer genius. They, they were smart. I, I From what I understand, Abrams personally went and lobbied Leonard Nimoy to return as Spock to, to bridge the venture and officially made the film a sequel. See, that's the catch. They brought back Spock and Spock is older and gets transported, continuing what they said was the original timeline, but brought him into a whole new timeline where we can see all the old adventures told from an entirely different new perspective. So technically, Star Trek 2009 is a reboot, but technically it's also a sequel. So you have this hybrid that I'm going to call a repackaging. When Nimoy meets face-to-face -face with Chris Pine's wonderfully realized James T. Kirk, he clearly recognizes him as his old friend from the original storyline, thus firmly making this film a sequel. And yet, like I said, it's a remake, reboot, and translated in cinema words, a reimagining. So look, whether you liked Star Trek 2009 or not, it made money and it relaunched the entire series and it breathed new life. Whether you like that life or not, it was totally new life into the half century old franchise. Now you can argue, well, you know, uh, Bono wasn't exactly a great villain and yada, yada, yada. I'm not here to review the movie. I'm talking about the actual process to do what they did and J.J. Abrams did it. I, I kind of 
uh, liken it to the Seinfeld thing when George and Jerry were trying to figure out the the ultimate thing of of the menage a trois and uh, sw- swapping girlfriends, I believe the episode was. J.J. Abrams did it. He did that move. It had never really been done before, and he pulled it off. However, then they blew it, and they made Star Trek Into Darkness, and that's where the filmmakers showed their true colors. Star Trek Into Darkness is 100% cinema. I have called out uh, the J.J. Abrams formula, and, and, and I call it this to his approach to filmmaking or, or actually marketing his films, and, and it's the, no, it's not, no, it's not, uh, okay, it is. Uh, he, he did this with his TV series Lost when he denied that the island was purgatory and all the castaways were dead. And then at the end, it was like, you know, for, for the first how many seasons, it was no, it's not, no, it's not. And then in the end, it's like, oh, okay, yes, it is. And we all know how Lost ended. Star Trek Into Darkness is a repackaging and it's a deceptive film because instead of relying on a strong script, Star Trek Into Darkness cannibalizes the previous and superior Wrath of Khan. Why go through all the damn trouble of doing the great thing that you did in 2009 with the Star Trek reboot repackaging only to turn around and remake the Wrath of Khan? Abrams got caught because apparently Benicio Del Toro was uh, associated with Into Darkness and then left the project. And I think that leaked out. So Abrams did not want to tip anybody off that the villain in the next Star Trek film was going to be Khan. So they cast Benedict Cumberbatch. And that was, I believe, a cynical move to throw people off. Benedict Cumberbatch, as we know, ends up playing Khan. I remember seeing a preview and then reading something where, you know, the character's name was John Harrison. Well, if I, I knew enough from seeing the original Space Seed TV episode that John Harrison was a crew member uh, in that film of Space Seed where Khan was introduced. So I put the connection together and it didn't take much to realize that, oh, Star Trek Into Darkness, the villain is going to be Khan. Now, Benedict Cumberbatch, of course, is the most unlikely Khan. And dopey fanboys make excuses that the altered timeline would alter Khan's appearance. And I call bullshit. Altering timelines does not change race, ethnicity, or sex of characters. If it does, then make Kirk Indian or black or make him a woman. Khan is made Caucasian to throw off the public and deliver a twist in a lackluster, lazy script. And that is cinema. Into Darkness is nothing more than a patchwork of scenes openly ripped from the Wrath of Khan. That horrible ending where Spock shouts, Khan! at Kirk's death is a fucking embarrassment. I sat in the theater going, you've gotta be kidding me. And and I'll tell you, there was one guy when they revealed that Benedict Cumberbatch was Khan, I heard this guy go, I'm out of here. And he walked out. The script in quotes did nothing to understand that the emotion from the 1982 film was built on decades of adventures and relationship between Spock and Kirk. That ripoff scene means nothing in the Abrams film as these two men had just basically met in the previous film and nothing has been built between them. This is a cynical ripoff and Abrams tried to excuse the whole film as a tribute to the Wrath of Khan. It is not. Why remake the most beloved Star Trek entry in the entire series? You're setting yourself up for failure or you just don't care. There's nothing clever about Into Darkness. Cumberbatch is a fine actor. I'm I'm not reviewing the film in that way. I mean, again, production-wise, it's beautiful. 
It's well made. I love Chris Pine's Kirk. And, and I really love Zachary's Spock. I, that has nothing to do with anything. But you can't just bend the rules cynically just to pull a surprise twist because you really have a lame movie. You just can't swap ethnicities and race. You just can't do it. Okay, and then hide it under the pretext of alternate timeline. So this is the danger of the repackaging. So, so follow me on this. So Jurassic World followed into, into Darkness's lead. Jurassic World is a remake Trojan horse, ladies and gentlemen. It, it gets away with being a sequel, but it's really nothing more than Jurassic Park version 10. I mean, look, Jurassic World has all the same elements. The kids in peril, the reluctant romance, and the conspiracy of technology falling into the wrong hands. Throw in convenient plot devices like, you know, a, a dinosaur that is suddenly discovered to possess the ability to evade thermal scans and, and use camouflage and possess superior intelligence. And, and you have all the set pieces stitched together with thin characters, sophomoric dialogue, and punctuated by a crash and boom ending. It's, it's Jurassic Park all over again. And yet, Jurassic World pulled it off. It became the fifth biggest film of all time, and, and it is a total middle finger to audiences. Look, maybe as director of this film, Colin Trevorrow was told something like, here, Colin, this is how it's going to go. Don't get any ideas. Just do this. This thing will direct itself. Kind of like 1981's Halloween 2. There are so many scenes that openly copy the moments from the first film that for a moment I wondered which movie I was truly watching from, from the T-Rex attack on the Jeep in part one to the dinosaur stampedes and the nature finds a way moment. It's all blatantly copied in Jurassic World and passed off as a loving tribute, but it's not. It's all those scenes just repackaged and redone up. Fifth biggest film of all time, maybe. But it's a screw job for a popular culture and, and audiences are either so starved or so ignorant that they don't even realize that they've been had. Okay, so hopefully I'm moving along quick enough here to, to get to the whole Ghostbusters thing and where it really went off the rails and why remakes have such a bad taste. And we're going to go into that. Like, why, why do people react so badly to remakes and they become outraged and offended and, and, and almost, they, they really do, they take it personally in, in some respects. But we'll get to that in a moment. So let's, for the last thing here in this trifecta of, of movies, let's look at Terminator Genesis, which of course now we have Terminator Dark Fate coming out. And I have no idea how that's going to sandwich in between uh, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, and then Genesis, and all of that stuff where Sarah Connor was dead and obviously now she's back. Did they ignore Terminator 3? Have timelines changed? Again, we don't know. The best characters and scenes from the Superior, the Terminator, and Terminator 2 are really, folks, reshot and repackaged and placed into a threadbare timeline. And it's overly complicated. You do that. You, you create all these like timeline stories and all that to make it feel like the movie has some substance. But when you start clearing out all that minutia and, and subterfuge, you find there really isn't a whole lot there. Large set pieces are stitched together with threadbare characters that, while in a different timeline, bear little resemblance both physically or personality to their alternate universe counterparts. Dialogue is again sophomoric, written for teenagers, and the sad part is the adult characters sound like teenagers. This new Sarah Connor sounds less like an adult woman than an Ellen Page Juno brat. I think Terminator Genesis is a mess. There are moments in Genesis that serve as a warning for the technology we think we control. 
The film itself is a warning to both filmmakers and audiences. Either take back your entertainment or it will continue to take you and your money. Jurassic World, Into Darkness, and Genesis are signs of more ominous things to come, and, and they have. The, the only way to stop this, and, and, and again, it's like trying to stop a hurricane, a tornado, or a tsunami, but if I were to offer up anything is, is like the theme of the Terminator films, we, we must seize control of our destiny. The scary part is that it, it seems most people just simply don't know any better and they don't want to. These three films, before I lead into Ghostbusters 2016 and, and the reason for such knee-jerk reaction to remakes, is that they are the next generation of cinema. These filmmakers can do better. These studios can do better. But they simply choose not to do it because they don't have to. Genesis clearly showed that the series is not just old, but also it could be obsolete. It brings nothing new to the table. It offers a thin, convoluted script to make people think it's smarter than what it really is. In reality, this is simply a bad movie with a big budget and really not much more. It may signal the rise of, of the executives as the real directors of movies, with, with screenwriters turned into over-glorified storyboarders providing just notes and captions. The rise of the executives. God help us. <laughs> Let's talk now about the knee-jerk reaction, online reaction, to whenever we hear something is being remade. And, and I'm going to offer up some, some things as to maybe why people, we, we react to this. And why Ghostbusters 2016 is a real example of why people react so badly to remakes. So they announced that Home Alone is going to get remade and, and they use some kind of an excuse uh, along the line of that, you know, they're going to redo it for a new generation. So I'm going to make it very clear. Ghostbusters 2016 is not funny. And as a result, I will argue that it's really not a movie. It's not really a remake. It's not a sequel. And yet it is just what we talked about a major repackaging and in my opinion, a total misfire that triggered some serious online backlash. The trailer holds a record for the most negative comments on YouTube. However, the venomous personal attacks against one of its stars, Leslie Jones, well, they were unwarranted and they are inexcusable. So Ghostbusters 2016, answer the call, whatever the hell they called it, is another studio bait and switch. And this has, again, nothing to do with a female cast. It's not a racial thing. So let's get the misogyny and race baiting out of the way, okay? Ghostbusters 2016 wouldn't have been funny even if the original actors starred, even if they were white males, it wouldn't have mattered. And for the record, does, does everybody forget just how bad Ghostbusters 2 was? I mean, yes, there, there was a lot of hate for Ghostbusters 2016, but man, people forget what a lousy sequel Ghostbusters 2 was. And that film was one of the reasons why there never was an immediate third film and why we had to wait all these years to finally get it. And of course, after Harold Ramis is dead. So one last time about the misogyny and, and the race baiting and all that, I'm going to be very clear. Some people are just assholes and online anonymity allows them to be assholes. The internet allows a voice, as I've said before, to some people who simply should not have one. Here's where I think whether it was the Home Alone announcement or, or any type of remake announcement for beloved classic films. And I think this might be part of the reason why there is such a backlash. And that is there's, there's this undercurrent of Hollywood 
like pillaging our memories and fucking with stuff that, that they just shouldn't be fucking with. We, we feel kind of helpless that, that this giant industry is coming in and, and taking great memories that we had and somehow like clockwork orange style messing with, with what we remembered. And, and this one guy yesterday on Twitter said something really great. He's like, look, it doesn't matter how many times they remake a movie. If the original was really good, that's where people are going to kind of go to. It's, it's the, you know, their cultural default. And that was a really great point. And, and I loved what he had to say about it. He equated it kind of like with uh, different versions of a play. While you may have loved the original play with the original stars, over the years that play is revived with a new cast and sometimes it's better and, and it catches people in a new way and, and gets the story out there to a new generation. Absolutely fantastic point made. And that's what really a good remake should do. But what happens when you don't have a remake? What happens when you take a film like this one, Ghostbusters 2016, let, let's just forget right now Jurassic Park Into Darkness and Terminator Genesis, but when you take a film like 2016's Ghostbusters and, and you just don't know what you're doing with it and the audience sits there and goes, I, I, I guess. So, so let's get down to it. Big special effects comedies are really tough. And large-scale effects and humor aren't like a Reese's cup. A good script fuses the two elements. And if you look at something like Howard the Duck, if you remember that, and Ghostbusters 2, I mean, think about it. Howard the Duck came out at the height of George Lucas's power. And everything that was Lucas was Star Wars and, and all of this stuff. It was like, this, this is going to be a huge box office hit. And we know what happened with Howard the Duck. Let's get Ghostbusters 2 out of the way. The sequel came four years after the, the really surprising success of Reitman's original film. Columbia Pictures, they, they feared they had a bomb on their hands and, and the 1984 film allegedly had a disastrous industry screening. Uh, there, there's a story where someone came up to Ivan Reitman in, in the 1984 screening out in Hollywood and kind of patted him on the shoulder and said, you know, better luck next time, that, that kind of thing. Uh, everyone expected this movie to fail. I mean, originally, we'll get into it later, that, that you know John Belushi was supposed to be in the film and then he died. I mean, there's always that, is this movie cursed bullshit. Uh, it, it, there was no pathway to success for Ghostbusters at all. And Columbia prepared for a flop. And, and as we know, the film went on to be one of the top grossing comedies of all time. If you go back, if you're old enough to remember the summer of 1984, man, that was the summer of Gremlins, The Karate Kid, Star Trek Three, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the never-ending story, and, and, and even the last Starfighter. I mean, President Reagan was riding high in the saddle. The United States was emerging from a recession, and it was, it was morning again in America with the U.S. returning to the world stage. And folks, this is important. I'm not just going off on here on, on historical detail. The time that a movie is made is important and imperative to its success. You take a movie out of its contextual historical setting and you have a problem. And I'm going to go into eventually in a later podcast, the Friday the 13th series, which is a shining example of the time it was made and its success is congruent to it. I mean, MTV was exploding along with, with cable TV that, that, that carried it and, and music videos were all the rage and, 
and classic stars like David Bowie and the Stones were, were falling right into that line. And, and Michael Jackson was the height of his fame with Thriller and John Landis had MTV dominated with, with his Thriller video. And, and that put MTV on the A-list when John Landis came in and, and made Thriller. And, and Cindy Lauper told us what girls just wanted to do. And Culture Club redefined pop gender. And Prince showered us with Purple Rain. And Tina Turner told us what, what comebacks got to do with it. Madonna was our material girl. And Huey Lewis gave us sports. See what I did there? John Hughes was stylizing teenage comedies. And as a result, gave us a voice to Generation X with 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club and... And I mean, he went on to speak for an entire generation of teens. I, I remember sitting watching The Breakfast Club and, and feeling like God had spoken to me. No film had touched me at that point like The Breakfast Club. And I felt really reached out to me as, as a teenager. I, I just thought it was, it was incredible. Steven Spielberg dominated the entire decade and he was putting the finishing touches on reinventing American cinema after E.T. And, and damn it, we liked what we saw. I'm telling you, this, this whole thing that I just gave you, this spiel that I just gave you on, on the 1980s and specifically 1984 is absolutely important to the success of the original Ghostbusters and something that the 2016 repackaging, notice I don't say sequel and I don't say remake, had no connection with. And everyone just wanted to laugh in the 80s. We came out of the dark 70s and and Watergate and, and the end of the dark 60s with Manson and everything like that. The country was in a great mood. And as a result, Ghostbusters tapped into it. Holy shit, 1984 was a great fucking year for pop culture. There were a lot of indirect factors in that year that went into Ghostbusters 1984's success. It was a product of its time. And, and it could be argued the film rode the coattails of a pop culture era of good feelings. Ghostbusters 1984, like its 2016 shadow, drew on Saturday Night Live, which was experiencing a resurgence thanks to Eddie Murphy. For those of you who don't remember, Eddie Murphy single-handedly saved Saturday Night Live from cancellation. The post-1980 cast just didn't connect with viewers, and it was Eddie Murphy that resuscitated the entire show and prevented cancellation. They should have just called it The Eddie Murphy Show. The original cast did well with feature films because it was good to see them together again. And, and John Belushi was supposed to star alongside Dan Aykroyd in Ghostbusters. Then Belushi, as we all know, suddenly died, which further fueled nostalgia for the original cast. So Bill Murray, much like he did for Chevy Chase, stepped in for Belushi for Ghostbusters. All of this had every bit to do with the success of the 1984 film. This was a case of right place, right time. So let's look at the script. By, by now, we all know that Bill Murray pretty much ad-libbed the majority of his lines in Ghostbusters 1984. And I watched this film a number of times. I remember as, as a movie theater usher when I was a kid, and it was almost always Murray who got the laughs. The film's biggest line, he slimed me, was Murray's work and holy shit did the audience applaud and, and laugh like crazy at that line every damn time. And for the record, Ghostbusters opened in June and it didn't leave our movie theater until after Halloween. That's how popular the movie was. And it was making money when they yanked it. Much like Home Alone did when they yanked that out of our theater years later when I was a manager of that same theater. 
Look, Dan Aykroyd was always smart enough to know he was a supporting guy and that his best way is to play the straight man. His strength was partnering with the right people and we saw him do this fantastically with the Blues Brothers and Trading Places and Ghostbusters, The Great Outdoors, Spies Like Us. Aykroyd's films faltered when he played against the straight man type in films like Dr. Detroit and Caddyshack 2 especially and, and really... Uh, a shining example is Neighbors, where audiences were just not expecting him to play the over-the-top wacko, which everybody thought John Belushi would have played. So we have this smart cast rounded out by the perfect 80s dick, William Atherton. My God, was he great as the EPA guy, Walter Peck. He was a stellar dick to Bill Murray's asshole. And Atherton was one of a handful of guys like Paul Gleason or, or Martin Cove that 80s casting agents could go to when the film needed a dickhead. The 1984 film took on a really cool premise, and that is technology could be used to capture supernatural beings. And this was all before that ghost hunting bullshit. It was a weird fusion of science and the supernatural. And this concept fit in with the arcade game wave. And, and as a result, Ghostbusters in many ways was, was like a live action video game. It really was. Ghostbusters has been called one of the best films about New York. It captured the city's unique personality without being heavy-handed like its unfortunate sequel. The Bernstein musical score also gave it this really cool, quirky New York City feel. The film had personality and made viewers feel that this could have happened only in New York City. And any New Yorkers listening can go right on. Picture Ghostbusters taking place in Los Angeles or Miami or even Philadelphia or Seattle. It's just not the same, is it? Only New York City could host both King Kong and Mr. Stay Puffed. They allowed Bill Murray to lead the team and Harold Ramis, Aykroyd, and Ernie Hudson knew their lanes and they stayed in them. That's going to be a big problem for 2016. Reitman didn't allow Rick Moranis to run away with the show. Sigourney Weaver, it was she, she was great. I mean, she brought a cool classiness to the film. Can't really say that I felt she really belonged in there and was a very odd kind of chemistry choice with Bill Murray. But these two shining actors made it work. And Annie Potts shines, speaking of shining, in a supporting role. She was terrific as Janine. There was just enough of everyone, with the possible exception, like I said, of William Atherton's EPA dick. This would not be the case with Ghostbusters 2, folks. No one had the lead. If you remember, Rick Moranis was back, and he, he went from that, you know, Lewis Tully accountant to becoming a lawyer, and then he became a Ghostbuster in that movie for some reason. I mean, someone thought it would be funny to make Annie Potts and Moranis lovers, and it wasn't, especially after establishing that she and Harold Ramis had a thing going in the first film, which actually was a very funny chemistry thing. And Bill Murray seemed lost and, and just plain fucking bored. Ernie Hudson was given even less to do. I felt really bad for him. And they shoved Sigourney Weaver in for, for good measure. And, and I think she served little purpose other than filling out the returning original cast. Harold Ramis showed up. He had Peter McNichol as, as this art dealer who really wasn't much of a substitute for Atherton's EPA agent. And Vigo, the, the, the painting spirit or something like that, was, was no gozer, let alone Zool. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was swapped out for a ridiculous walking Statue of Liberty to continue the giant thing stomping the city ending of the first film. Ghostbusters 2 was a misfire, man. Ghostbusters 2 was the bad version of the original film. It has more in common with the 2016 repackaging than it does with Ghostbusters 1984. 
Ghostbusters 2 left a bad taste in most viewers' mouths, especially Bill Murray, and he publicly disavowed the film and stated a number of times it killed the franchise. And if you go to my cinema blog, uh, where it's the title is called Who You Gonna Call Out? You can read. I have him quoted. Okay, you can read the links where he says this very thing. Murray made it really clear there would be no Ghostbusters 3 with him involved. He did loan his voice to the video game, which, which Dan Aykroyd actually posits is, is a quasi-third film. Now, we know they're finally making a third film with, with Jason Reitman directing, and it's going to have the original cast, and, and they're doing this to erase the stain of Ghostbusters 2016. Bill Murray wouldn't do a third film. But he would do the sitcom level cameo in the 2016 movie. With the effort that he put into that, he and the remaining original Busters could have passed the torch to the ladies and did a classy sign off. This could have been done in the same amount of 2016 screen time that they put in for those lousy cameos. Instead, Murray, Aykroyd, and Hudson clock in to do their part to prop up a film that went into production when it should have started script revisions. Ghostbusters 2016 caught the brunt of remake backlash in a case of wrong place, wrong time in the zeitgeist. It wasn't misogynistic backlash. It's simple. The movie wasn't funny, and it had nothing to say. The internet plays a major role here, and Ghostbusters 2016 was released into a whole new world than its predecessor. It was a sitting duck for online hatred and took the brunt of it for other cinematic sins. That's where I'm going with this. Is it a remake? Is it a sequel? They feature some continuity from, from the original Ghostbusters film. If you remember, the, the trailer started off in setting the stage for the film as a sequel. If you remember that original trailer, it said 30 years ago, something like this. It said 30 years ago, they saved the world and now they're back. That says sequel to me. So sitting in the theater, I'm going, oh my God, we're finally getting Ghostbusters 3. Nope. The film has Harold Ramis's bust and, and is a leaning toward Egon and, and the same firehouse is used. Why do this? Why use the same firehouse? All it does is remind us of the first film. You're setting yourself up for failure. Is this movie a total do-over or, or does it have some continuity? I don't know. If it just doesn't know what the hell it wants to be and like Ghostbusters 2, it's a big expensive mess and a waste of talent and they wasted the talent of these women. The special effects are not special. Why was this even remade? I will argue that Richard Edlund's 1984 visual effects are superior to the CGI comic book tone of the new film. Edlund's practical effects had character. The new film has CGI copies of Slimer and Stay Puffed, and they're out of context, and I'll explain that later. There's just nothing fresh here. This is cynical. There is so much to parody in the supernatural world these days, folks. Since 1984, we have seen an explosion of the, of the so-called ghost hunting shows. We have bullshit psychics rooking people for ratings and talking to the dead. There is a wealth of material for a whole new team of Ghostbusters to take on. And yet, none of this is explored in Ghostbusters 2016. We have the sex role reversal gimmick, and, and Chris Hemsworth will be the eye candy for the ladies. I, I guess that's funny. He'll, he'll play against his Thor hunk type. And, and building on that, the scriptwriters thought it would be funny to have not one, not two, but three dance scenes in the film. 
I guess seeing Ghost Flash Mob dance is supposed to be current and, and fun or, or maybe even funny, but to me, it, it all fell flat. Someone thought it would be a good idea to make an all-female Ghostbusters, and, and the problem with that is, is that they never thought of giving them anything good to do. Whereas the original film braced the, the cultural times around it, this film ignores. It didn't have to take place in New York City. This Ghostbusters would have been right at home in plastic Los Angeles. It's that soulless. Not one of the four new Ghostbusters is the leader. Yes, Melissa McCarthy would technically be the founder of the group. Yet Kristen Wiig could also be called the leader. Wait, what about Kate McKinnon's Daffy performance and an Egon send up? She seems to move to the front of the row, at least for me. She was the standout. But wait, Leslie Jones is bucking for team leader as well. Just who is the one to guide us through? Ghostbusters 1984 made it very clear. While Dan Aykroyd had the idea for the Ghostbusters, we were led through the whole funny routine by Bill Murray. Look, the, the, the film feels forced and, and it's dull and it's, it's just vanilla. You've got casting director Allison Jones from, from the TV show The Office and she gets to get a bunch of The Office cast members in because, well, the, the director of the film also directed a bunch of Office episodes. And, and the script seems built around accommodating cameos. I mean, even Mr. Stay Puft's cameo was forced. There, there is no context. The, the post credit sequence also lacks important context as well. Unless you're a fan of the original film, how do you get the Zool gag at the end? This diminishes the work by the new team and, and it's a damn shame. Look, the simplest remedy without sucking up to quote unquote fans would have been to get the three original Ghostbusters to pass the torch to the new team, like I said. Instead, the filmmakers do everything but that. They try so damn hard to link this to the original film. They, they want it to be seen with fresh eyes. Remake it or don't remake it. And if you remake it, don't then include cameos from the original cast and, and make them bland. Go forth with something brave and daring. If, if you're gonna really remake Ghostbusters, then really fucking do it. Ghostbusters 2016 is great if you're seven. This was an expensive and wasted opportunity. We probably hate the idea of remakes because they mess with things that made us comfortable in our lives and we feel that that's being taken from us somehow and messed with. I would love to hear what you think. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts, and thanks for listening. See you in episode 9, where I'm going to have filmmaker Hilton Ruiz on talking about Zombie with a Shotgun and all the bullshit he's had to go through to get his independent film made. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review, and if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison. If you like this podcast, and if you're an aspiring filmmaker making your way through the independent film minefield, I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions by phone or Skype. Email me at this site or classof85llc at gmail.com for information and pricing. I offer input on your completed or in-development film or screenplay, and offer insight into all aspects of pre-production, production, and post, and eventual distribution. Hope to hear from you.